Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We're here for another week, and it's going to be an exciting week because we're not just talking about one destination this week. We're talking about the entire world, pretty much. Uh, To help me with that discussion, I have Jessica Nabongo. She is the author of an absolutely gorgeous new book. It's out from National Geographic. It's called The Catch Me If You Can, One Woman's Journey to Every Country in the World. Wow. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thank you for that introduction. It really, I was just sitting here shaking my head like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did it. And I've been reading the book. It's a lot of fun. Let's, let's start with the parameters of what you did. Mm-hmm. How many countries are there? And for you, you set a record as, as the first black woman to go to them all. Mm-hmm. Did you have to do that within a certain amount of time? No. So, okay. There's 195 countries in the world. The count that I use is the United Nations count. So the member countries and the two non-member observing states, just because that was easier for me so that there's no questions about what's a country and what's not a country. And, sure. um, and no, I didn't have to do it in a certain amount of time. It was really, you know, it was my personal journey. And so it, it started when I did my first trip abroad at the age of four, and then I finished in 2019. Um, I did 135 new countries in two and a half years. Wow. And what timing? You finished just before the world shut down. Yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah. And you were able to do this partially because you hold two passports, right? That, That allowed you to see some places where they don't welcome Americans. Absolutely. Um, I entered around 45 countries on my Ugandan passport. And if it, if I didn't have that passport, I wouldn't have been able to complete this feat. Or definitely, definitely not before the pandemic. Right. Yeah. No, that was really interesting. And, and just getting the visas <laughs> becomes a big part of this story. Yeah. I don't think most of our listeners would, would know uh, just the logistics of doing this. What was the most difficult visa to get? Um, the Syrian visa, you know, honestly, I didn't have any difficulties with any other visas, but when I applied, Syria wasn't allowing Americans to enter. And then mm-hmm. apparently they weren't allowing any African passport holders to enter because of the fear that they would they were going to overstay visas, which I thought was interesting. Um, And so I didn't get the visa to go to Damascus, which was my plan. And so what I ended up doing was going to Golan Heights, which is an, um, it's an Israeli occupied territory of Syria. Right. And, and that's how you were able to get it. Yeah. No, the boarding border crossings, uh, for you, uh, partially because of, of who you are mm-hmm. as a woman who definitely looks African, mm-hmm. um, you encountered a lot of suspicion, yeah. I would say, uh, particularly at borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about some of the mo- more dramatic moments? Yeah. Um, you know, one that always comes to my mind is the fact that, you know, you hear me and I'm obviously American, but you right. see me and I'm obviously African. And so I remember re-entering the U.S. after a work trip to Ethiopia and being asked for a second piece of ID, 
which, you know, this was mind blowing to me at that point. I'm sure I, I don't know how many countries I'd been to definitely in the forties, you know, and to have someone tell me that I needed to show a second piece of ID to prove that my passport was real. It was just such a wild experience, um, experience for me. Um, and then I think about when I was in Pakistan, which is the worst one, and I won't go into a lot of details. People can read it in the book. Um, but you know, they assumed that I was a drug mule and, Mm -hmm. you know, they put me in an x-ray, like a medical x-ray, um, to search my stomach for drugs as I was told. And so, yeah, there were some really harrowing situations that happened, but, what I think is important for people to rem- remember is that the government and the citizens exist on two different planes. The governments run those borders and they're usually trained by Western powers. And so they're trained to treat certain people in a certain way. That's yeah. not what the inside of the country is like. Pakistan, I had an amazing time. And despite me leaving there being the most traumatic thing that happened to me when I traveled, I would absolutely go back because of the experience that I had on the ground and with citizens of Pakistan. Yeah, I thought I thought it was important that you started the book uh, because I, I think a lot of your readers will be Americans. Yeah, uh, you you start the book with the sad uh, reality that where you personally have experienced the most racism is in your home country, is in the United States, mm-hmm. and and less so in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. What? Why did you decide to to put the U.S. first and and to put that statement at the at the start of the journey? You know, because because that's been my lived experience. You know, in Miami, um, a cop put a gun in my face, point blank range, because a friend's neighbor called and said we were breaking into my friend's house. You know, um, those are things that has never happened to me anywhere else in the world. And so I think it was important for me to say it because what I always hear about people is from people is, well, you know, people are afraid to travel abroad. And I just wanted to set the stage with that because I've not had any like it hasn't really happened to me anywhere else. A couple other places, Rome and Paris. But outside of those three, the U.S., Rome, Paris, I haven't had many like physically scary situations. And I did 89 countries solo. And that's because, and the biggest lesson I learned from this journey is most people are good. You know, my journey was made beautiful by the kindness of strangers. And I really hope that that's what people get out of the book. I hope the book helps people through not only my words, but also my images. I hope it makes people feel differently about the world. Yeah, I think it will. And the images are spectacular, especially about places. I think you are the very first person to ever come on my show. And I was on radio for 20 years. Now I'm doing the podcast. uh, Who is going to talk about the smallest island (laughs) nation on the planet. I thought that was a fascinating one. And I was a little embarrassed to to realize I had never heard of that country before. Mm Mm-hmm. Nauru. Tell us about Nauru. Yes, little baby Nauru. (laughs) You know, when you're flying in, you can actually see the entire country from a plane. And it's interesting because a lot of like the Pacific Islands and the Caribbean nations, they're usually islands that have multiple islands rather than just a single island. Um, But yeah, Nauru is a single island where on a motorbike, it only takes you 45 minutes to get around it. Um, And it's also the least visited country in the world. 
Yeah. I thought you, you met somebody who was a diplomat for the country and he went to Miami and was stopped by, again, the damn people at, at letting you into to the country mm-hmm. uh, who refused to believe that Nauru was a country. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, you also you also got uh, banged up there, right? That's the yes. only place you had a, uh, a big accident. Yeah, I it was my first time getting on a motorbike. I was so excited and I was doing well until my friend wanted to sort of go off road a little bit and my tire slipped and I fell and was dragged a little bit. Um, so it, it, you know, wasn't great, but I survived and, you know, I'm so thankful that that's the only, um, accident that I ever got in. Yeah. Yeah. You spent a lot of time as you had to going to the stands, which are the nations of central Asia. Mm -hmm. And I was I was just fascinated to read your compare and contrast of them, mm-hmm. uh, because even though they're all in the same region, one can be vastly different than than its neighbor. Can you? Which was your favorite, mm-hmm. and uh, which should people visit? Do you think if they can only go to one? If they can only go to one, I would definitely say Uzbekistan. Um, for me, you know, if, if anyone picks up this book, they will know that I love color. So uh, Uzbekistan is such a colorful country. I love their textiles, that ikat design. Um, oh, yeah. But also the mosques um, and a lot of that architecture is just bright. There's like Persian tile work there. Um, Samarkand is amazing, um, as well as Tashkent was really amazing to visit. So Uzbekistan, the people are so much fun. Not a lot of people speak English, but we still were able to have fun. My driver who took us around one day, he spoke zero English and we had such a fun time with him. So you find ways to communicate. Um, Yeah. yeah, And since I went, I believe they dropped the visa requirement for Americans. Huh? Oh, well, that's good. Interesting. You also went to a lot of places that would be considered dangerous that the U.S. State Department has a do not travel to warning on them, like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you were there before the Taliban uh, took control. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that must have been quite an experience. I don't know if you've ever read, there's a wonderful book uh, by a man who ended up becoming a British member of parliament. It's called The Places in Between. Mm -hmm. And he walked across Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and and found that every village had a totally different culture than the next because it's such a a mountainous country. Mm -hmm. One community would be incredibly cut off from another. Mm-hmm. So which did you visit and and how was your reception there? Yeah. So I went to, I wrote that book down. Thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, it's great. But I went to Masri Sharif and it was amazing. Like we, we went to the mosque, the blue mosque, uh, which is one of the, I, one of the most stunning mosques that I ever seen in my life. Again, you have that Persian tile work and obviously it's blue. Um, but it was wonderful because that's where you saw families communing. You saw men communing and women communing separately, but it was just such a beautiful backdrop. And people were so kind and so open. Uh, while I was in the square, um, one man handed me his baby to take a picture. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was really a beautiful time. And, you know, again, of course it was, it was safer at that time. Um, but I hope that when people read the story, it really installs that humanity, um, that really will hopefully change the way people feel about that region in general. Yeah. Speaking of 
of other uh, dangerous places, North Korea. <laughs> uh, that was fascinating. And you said in the book that you went to the best sh- or the most impressive show mm-hmm. uh, that you've ever seen anywhere. Can you can you describe that for our readers and w- what it was? Listeners, I should say. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to just say North Korea is like not dangerous at all. <laughs> like people Well, unless you get stuck. I mean, if unless you break the rules. Yeah, if you break the rules, yes. And I think many places are dangerous if you do that. But I just wanted to say that. Um, but uh yes, I went to um the Mass Games and it was this incredible show where with like nearly one hundred thousand um participants and they were doing acrobatics and dancing and it was gymnastics and it was such an amazing show because that stadium is the biggest stadium in the world. Um, And so it was really incredible just to see like this North Korean precision at work. I'm dying to see it. Did you feel, I thought it was interesting. You listed what some of the rules were. One of them is you can't take photos of the military. Another was you can't take photos of construction workers. And you know, what's so funny, the construction workers are the military. The construction workers are the military. Yes. Oh, I was wondering why you can't take pictures of construction workers. Yeah, I asked the same thing, and that's what they told us. Fascinating. Absolutely. Did you feel like you saw the real North Korea or a staged North Korea? Uh, I feel like I saw the real North Korea. Now, obviously, you know, I didn't go to all parts of the country. I definitely did leave Pyongyang. And, you know, I met college kids on their college campus and I, you know, I talked to them. If I spoke Korean, I would have been able to have a longer conversation. You know, we went to grocery stores and unless the government has hired tens of thousands of actors, um, you know, I saw people in the grocery store living their their lives. I saw children on field trips and couples in parks and people on the subway. And so for me, the, the craziest thing about North Korea was how normal it felt. Huh. Fascinating. I've never heard anybody say say that before about North Korea. Amazing. You also say in the book that one of your favorite countries is Jordan. Mm. Why Jordan? What, What makes Jordan so special? The people, like the people of Jordan really are family. I think of my, uh, my tour guide Maha and my driver Ahmed. And, you know, when I go to Jordan, I'm going to visit my family. Also, Jordan is really beautiful. And I did not know Jordan produces wine and they have really good red wine there. Um, so that's another little bonus. But obviously you have Petra, which is a world wonder and you have really great food. Uh, but really for Jordan, for me, it's the people. Well, I hate to say it, but you know, I always, I often hear what makes a place special. It's the people. Is there any place where the people weren't so special, where people were <laughs> unfriendly, where where you would not go back for the people? Yeah, <laughs> there are. I would say um, Moldova and Belarus, they just weren't very warm. And I'm like, I'm a super people person and they just weren't very warm. And I think a lot of people's reaction will say, well, that's Eastern Europe. But I'm like, no, I had an amazing time in Russia. I was solo. I love Serbia. I had such a fun time in Belgrade. I'm like, Belgrade is lit. Uh, so there's definitely places in Eastern Europe that I love. Uh, but in particular, Bo- uh, Belarus and Moldova, I'm, I don't think I'll ever be making my way back. 
Huh. Did they make it into the book? Because you choose a hundred of the 195 to feature in the book. That must have been difficult. How did you choose which to include? Yeah, they did not make it into this book. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I probably have to go back and try again and see what happens to write about them. But um, yeah, it was a mixture of being intentional about the stories and places that I wanted to include, places that people don't often think about when they think of travel. Um, I also wanted to be really intentional about the images I selected. You know, um, there's beautiful images from Yemen and Somalia uh, and places that people typically can't imagine beauty existing, you know? So that was really important to me. And that coupled with the fact that, of course, I'm telling a story. And so I wanted to talk about places where I had fun adventures or something funny happened or something really heartwarming um, to be able to color those experiences through the people. Where do you live now? And did, did this journey make you rethink where you would want to live? (laughs) Um, I live between Detroit and LA and Uh I definitely like, you know, obviously I'm working, I have this book now and there's a couple of other things in the works. And so I want to sort of establish more of my career, if you will. And then I definitely want to have different homes in different places. I'm hoping to buy some land in Senegal this year. Wow. And you're from Uganda. Yes. Uh, or your, your, your family is from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what should people do if they decide to go to Uganda? What, what, how does one create a, a, a memorable trip there? Yeah, that's one of the things that's in the book, which I love. Because the book is like basically a travelogue slash travel guide. Um, but I think, you know, Uganda is so special because Lake Victoria is there. You have the source of the Nile River there. And you have a ton of national parks. You have one of the highest concentration of bird species in the world, um, one of the highest concentration of primate species in the world. So there's tons of safari, one of three or four countries with um, the world's last remaining mountain gorillas. So you can go hiking with gorillas. There's really, and then culturally, it's very interesting. I love the food in Uganda. um, And there's so much to learn about the history and culture as well. So to me, Uganda is uh, interesting. So, I mean, if you're going all the way to Africa, and obviously it's a massive, massive continent, Mm -hmm. it's not easy to hop, you know, from place to place. But if somebody wanted to pair, a visit to Uganda with somewhere else, where would you recommend? Yeah, definitely. No matter where you are in Uganda, do it regionally. That's the best way to save money. And the East um, African region and the Southern African region are the cheapest to travel around. So for Uganda, I would say you compare it with Kenya, you compare it with Tanzania. Zanzibar is always a good idea. And for, um, you can also even do it with Rwanda. Rwanda is great. And they have a really beautiful, um, artists there, like amazing painters there. So though that's what I would recommend, just doing East Africa. So Rwanda, Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda. And there's also um, an East African visa. So I, it's for, you can look it up, it's for a few different countries, but you pay one price for a visa to like three or four different countries, which is great, a great way to save money. Yeah. Yeah. So you, at the very beginning, you said you did a lot of this solo. Um, why don't we end with what is your big advice for solo travelers? Yeah. uh, My big advice for solo travelers is release the fear. 
you know, like I said, most people are good. And that's a hugely important lesson that I learned. And if you aren't afraid of people, then there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been such a delight, both reading this book and actually just gazing at this book. I have to say, your photography is spectacular, just gorgeous. You said you love color that comes out in this book. Uh, (laughs) and, And such a delight speaking with you again. Best of luck with everything. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And that was Jessica Nabongo. As I said in the interview, it's really just a an eye candy book. Uh, seeing Jessica in all of these incredible places all over the world, and she uses drones, and she is always dressed in the most beautiful outfits, and uh, she's a wonder. She really is. And it's uh, there was one moment in the interview when she says. I'm very grateful to have done this all before COVID because obviously I think she, she did it before COVID pretty much ended a couple of months before the pandemic hit and then was able to spend the pandemic writing the book. And now it's published probably also be harder to travel around the world with all of the uncertainties right now surrounding air travel. Uh, It's been breaking my heart because it feels like every week, Travel is in the news for the worst possible reason because of chaos at the airports, both here and in Europe. I got to say, it's not just a U.S. problem. A couple of months ago, uh, before we knew what the scope of this would be, but I think after we saw uh, a raft of cancellations and delays at U.S. airports, I wrote a piece on how to book a flight that won't get canceled. Now, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek headline because there's no way you can do that absolutely. But because so many of these cancellations happen at the confluence of staffing shortages and bad weather, and because we're seeing so much more bad weather because of climate change, Uh, I think that one of the smartest things to do, and what's been happening will bear me out. Generally, if you can travel the very first flight of the day, that's the way not to get stuck places. And when you can, you should travel on a direct flight because the more times you have to take off and land, the more times trouble can come a knocking at your door, (laughs) the more times uh, things can go wrong. But it really has to do with the weather. And the reason the first flight of the day is, is such a good one to be on is when you get on board that flight, you know that the plane was at the airport overnight. So it didn't have to wing its way in uh, from anywhere else. It, it just uh, will be there in the morning, and the crew who is going to staff it will have been at that airport overnight, which also is important. Um, because of that, you're less likely to deal with the staffing shortages because you can just take off. Everybody's there. They're not going to time out. You know, often pilots and flight crew um, have a, a limit on how long they're allowed to work legally, and that doesn't 
come into play so much first thing in the morning. And just meteorologically, uh, generally, storms tend to build up during the day. Uh, and storm delays certainly do, uh, because if, if there's a delay at just one airport, that could cause a ripple effect throughout the entire system as, as planes get stuck and can't get to the next airport that they're about to take off from. So that's a bit of advice. I always hate to end on a negative. I, I was recently on a panel for the Smithsonian. Uh, we did over Zoom. I hope we can go back fully in person. I mean, Zoom is nice. You, you feel like you're shouting into the wind. But, um, but the panel was incredible. And one of my fellow panelists was Andrea Sachs, who's one of the most talented travel writers working today. And one of the questions we got from the audience was, when can I start traveling again? When is everything going to get better in travel? And I thought she had a very, very wise answer. She said, don't wait for things to get better. Because what we learned over the pandemic is life can change on a dime. And who knows if your health or if your budget or if the state of the world will allow you to travel in the future. Travel is a... Um, it's an activity that depends on a lot of stability. And so if you have the if you have the opportunity to travel now, and if yes, you can afford it, because I know that's changing for people, um, do it. Do it. Who knows what the future holds? I think that's been the sad reality that the pandemic has taught us. That, that we just don't know what the future holds and that it's really an illusion if you ever thought you did. <laughs> um, that's another sad ending to this show, isn't it? And I'm trying to be upbeat. Well, maybe this is upbeat. Happy Father's Day. It's Father's Day as I'm recording this. I want to wish a happy Father's Day to my own wonderful, wonderful father, the best dad a girl could hope for, my mentor as well as my dad, uh, to my husband who's a wonderful father, and to all of the fathers out there. And I, I hope you, I hope some of you fathers are traveling. And to you and to your companions, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Channel